Part One, Chapters Six through Eight of Futility, a novel on Russian themes by William Gerhardi. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espayat. Six. She was silent for some time. Andrei Andreitch, does she love him? Cannot live without him? Don't you believe it? I told Nikolai Vasilievich. She will leave you as soon as she has robbed you of your money. Then I shall come back to you, he said. Thank you for nothing, I said. I shan't want you then. Andrei Andreitch, it is all his money. It is really comic, but they all believe him to be preposterously rich. A house owner in Petersburg, gold mines in Siberia, a millionaire. Zina's people keep telling her, Stick to him, stick to him, don't let him go. These gold mines in Siberia, these millions, this house in the Mohawaya. That's all, in fact, they are after. Why won't his wife give him his divorce and be done with him? Because she believes in the gold mines. Why does Baron Wunderhausen always hang about here? Why does he run after Nina, Vera, and Sonia? The gold mines again and the house in the Mohovaya. "'What of me?' I cried in horror. "'I come here every evening, Fanny Ivanovna, and stay till late in the night. Oh, you are different. I shall have to stop coming now. You may as well dismiss at once from your mind any suspicion of an ulterior motive,' said Fanny Ivanovna, rising to the occasion. "'They are worth nothing anyhow.' both the gold-mines in Siberia and the house in the Mohovaya. Worthless? You don't mean it. Absolutely. Do the gold-mines pay nothing? Andrei Andreitch, I have lived with Nikolai Vasilievich now for eleven years. I don't remember their ever paying a kopeck. They may have paid before my time, but I doubt it. Nikolai Vasilievich, though, is constantly pouring money into them every month, every year, to keep them going. And this, Andrei Andreitch, what with the money he has to fork out for his wife and Eisenstein, and what we spend ourselves, and what he gives Zina and her people, who are very poor, and, she blushed, what he sends my own people in Germany, and his own sisters and cousins, and several other friends in dependence. Why, Andrei Andreitch, it takes all he can scrape together. But the house in the Mohovaya? Precisely. He has been compelled to mortgage the house to be able to manage it all, and keep the other thing going. I whistled under my breath. I remember how Baron Wunderhausen had grasped me by the arm one day as he spoke with enthusiasm of Nikolai Vasilievich. Rich as Croesus, he had said. Well, I felt sorry for him. I heard a little nervous cough and a rustle, and a harmless little old man, like a mouse, whom I had not noticed in the room before, rose and walked out. I was horrified. Fanny Ivanovna, I cried, that man has heard everything you've said. Oh, Knyats, she said with undisguised contempt. He's heard it all before. I felt that this startling news rather took the guilt off the confession. I had flattered myself on being the first, in fact the only one. 
"'He's heard it many times,' said Fanny Ivanovna. "'Every now and then I feel that I absolutely must confess it all to somebody, no matter who it is.' "'I thought,' I said a little reproachfully, "'that you had told nobody, Fanny Ivanovna.' "'Andre Andreitch,' she cried in her tone of appeal to my sense of justice, "'I haven't spoken of it to anyone for more than two weeks.' If you hadn't come here today, I don't know. I really think I should have confessed it to the hall porter. You don't understand. I do understand, I said, but I could not help feeling misused and mishandled. I almost begrudged her the gallantry of my dash for water, two separate dashes to be exact, when I remembered that they must have been carried out by other men before me, the confession tonight being, of course, an exact replica of the confessions that had preceded it, Lord knows how many times, like a melodrama with its laughter and hysterics occurring always at the proper interval as it is produced each night. And I was led to revise my recently adopted theory that I was indeed a born confidant by virtue of my understanding personality, tempting strange women into thrilling, exhilarating confessions of their secrets, Rather did I feel the victim of a lengthy and tedious autobiography inflicted on me under false pretenses. I heard the sound of the outer door closing on the old prince. Kniatz, said Fanny Ivanovna, is also one of those who live on Nikolai Vasilievich. He always comes here, never misses a day, sits, reads, eats, and then goes, and all without uttering a word. When he borrows money from Nikolai Vasilievich, he naturally opens his mouth, and then shuts it until the next occasion. The old prince was one of those quiet non-entities who enter unasked and leave unhindered almost any Russian home, and no one is likely to object to their coming, because no one is likely to notice them. They have a face, a name, a manner so ordinary that you cannot remember them, ever. They are so colorless, so blank that they seem scarcely to exist at all. I think Goncharov speaks of them somewhere, but I would not be sure of it. Knyats was like that. His name was some very ordinary name, and it even seemed odd that he should not have a more exclusive name for his title. But no one cared. No one, to be sure, knew what his name was. His imya ochestvo was Pavel Pavlovich, like the barons, and so he was called by all but Fanny Ivanovna, who called him Kniatz sarcastically, a prince without a kopeck to his title. I only remember that he was always very neatly dressed, shaved regularly, and wore a very stiff and sharp collar, which seemed to torture his dry and skinny neck. Kniatz has some shares, she explained. In a limited company, but they are worthless, always have been, and never paid any dividends, never so long as anybody can remember. Has he always lived on you, then? He lived on his brother when he was alive. He had great expectations from his brother, but his brother died and left him more shares, quite a number of shares in the same limited company. Whom the brother lived on when he was alive, Lord only knows. Did they get their shares from their father? Their uncle. 
Did he get any dividends? Nikolai says no, but he seems to have put all his money into them. And now I suppose you invite Kniatz to come and live with you? I asked. He comes of his own accord. You don't object to his coming? No one would tell him even if they did. It's not a Russian habit to object to anyone who comes to your house. It isn't much good objecting either. They'll come anyhow. But never mind. Extraordinary man, said I. What does he propose to do? Has he any plan? He believes in the shares. Have you ever tried to disillusion him? I wouldn't be so heartless, said Fanny Ivanovna. And the girls? For them money does not exist. They are sublimely indifferent to it. And Nikolai Vasilievich? Nikolai Vasilievich believes in the mines. Kniaz helps him to sustain that belief in return for Nikolai's fate in the shares. The money Kniaz borrows from Nikolai Vasilievich he regards merely as an advance on his future dividends. And does Nikolai Vasilievich regard it in that light? I asked. He pretends he does, but he always says, Never mind, if only the mines begin to pay, all will be well, Pavel Pavlovich. And the family, Fanny Ivanovna, I cried, I mean his wife and her family, his fiancée and her family, you and your family, his sisters, cousins, Kniatz and the others, and their families, do they believe in the mines? More firmly than Nikolai. If, in fact, one fine day Nikolai turned a skeptic in matters mining, they would, I am sure, suspect him of shamming poverty to prevent them from getting their legitimate share. Fanny Ivanovna, I sighed, good night. I know it is amusing, she said. I wish it wasn't real life, our life, my life. Then I would find it a trifle more amusing. I hailed a driver who slumbered in his sleigh on the corner of the Mohovaya and the Pantalemanskaya. As I drove home across the frozen river, on which the moon spread its yellow light, I thought of the Bursanov's muddled life, and then Chekhov's three sisters dawned upon my memory. I understood now why Nikolai Vasilievich sympathized so heartily with the people in the play. 7. That evening I remember as an ever-deepening initiation into the very complicated affairs of the Bursanov family. It had been raining again, and the washed cobbles on either side of the street looked clean and shining as if newly polished. For once Nikolai Vasilievich was at home, but he had gone into his study, and, sitting at the piano, I could not help listening to what was said in the room. But Mamma does want to divorce herself, Fanny Ivanovna, from Nina. She didn't before, said Fanny Ivanovna. She does now, said Nina. I wonder why. I don't really think, Fanny Ivanovna, that you have any right to know that. She can't have a divorce anyhow, said Fanny Ivanovna, and I have asked you to make that clear to her. You see, said the girl of fifteen, Mamma has her own point of view. She doesn't look at things from your point of view. Why should she? Why should she? repeated Fanny Ivanovna, and there was a long pause. 
"'I've done what you asked me,' said her ambassador, shrugging her pretty shoulders. I stopped playing. Nikolai Vasilievich came back, and we sat down to dinner, and amongst us appeared Vera. I was to understand her presence a little afterwards. The atmosphere was tense. No doubt they had all been discussing the family tangle. No doubt Nikolai Vasilievich and Fanny Ivanovna had been shouting and blackguarding each other as usual. But silence reigned for the moment. It was as if they had all been a little overstrained by this uncanny family burden. Then there was a ring at the bell. It was merely the postman, and the maid brought in a letter for Fanny Ivanovna. So soon as she caught sight of the envelope, she got flushed and wildly excited. "'It's from Germany,' she cried, and something about her flush, about her manner, told us that the letter was a painful reminder of her painful circumstances, rather than a joy. She tore it open, and for some reason the room grew still. All seemed to watch her in perfect silence. And then she fluttered the letter and flushed again, and cried out to Nikolai Vasilievich in a voice of deep sorrow and reproach as a tear welled up from her eye. "'Listen, dear Fanny, and Nikolai, and Nikolai, and Nikolai, do you hear? And Nikolai!' Nikolai echoed with pathetic insistence. It was a sound that rent the heart. Tears flushed her eyes, sobs choked her throat, and for the moment, at all events, they forgot her clumsy stupidities, they felt only how irreparably they had wronged her. And then, like the announcement of the next act, there was another ring. We heard an unfamiliar voice inquire in the hall if Nikolai Vasilievich was at home. Then the visitor's card was brought in by the maid. "'No!' said Nikolai Vasilievich, rising very emphatically. "'I draw the line there.' And he walked away to his study. Fanny Ivanovna, her tragedy forgotten in the excitement of the visit, snatched at the card. "'Eisenstein!' she exclaimed. "'Oh!' cried the three sisters in disgust. And then, uninvited, unannounced, Eisenstein walked into the dining-room. He was a tall, flabby man, with prominently Jewish features, and probably good-looking as Jews of that type go. "'Nina,' he said, looking round, "'I want to see Nina. I missed seeing her in Moscow.' "'Yes,' Nina said, "'I'm here.' Fanny Ivanovna looked at Eisenstein with scrutiny. I think she could feel no real enmity to this man, because he had, after all, run away with Nikolai Vasilievich's wife, to all appearance a necessary preliminary to her own advent into his life. It was quite obvious that Eisenstein was not in the least seeking a tete-a-tete -tete with Nina, but on the contrary desired to exhibit his overflowing emotions to as large an audience as possible. Nina, he said halting in the middle of the room, and I remembered that Eisenstein had been an actor in his youth, a conjurer and a ventriloquist. "'Nina, she mustn't leave me. You, who have such influence over your mother, must insist on that.' And no sooner than any one had been prepared for it, his body quivered and he wept bitter tears. "'Mose Moseyich,' Nina said, "'you mustn't cry. That won't do at all.' 
Monsieur Eisenstein, intervened Fanny Ivanovna, rising dramatically. This is my house, and I won't allow it. You leave him alone, Fanny Ivanovna, said Nina. I can't bear it, Nina, he said, coming up to her. Why must she leave me? Haven't I always been very kind to her, Nina? She says I speculate. But why do I speculate? For her, Nina. For her, cried Nina in bewilderment but he misunderstood her intonation. Why, of course. With her money, Mose Moseich. My dear child, even if it is her money, what of it? I'm still doing it for her, trying to get her more. My heart bleeds for her. She has so little money. Your father, in his immoral pursuits of other women, has forgotten his own wife. Mose Moseich, leave us. But why, Nina? You're hopeless hopeless and you say that nina haven't i always been a good father to you when you came to live with us at moscow haven't i always been a good father to you now have i not nina nina you alone can stop her i've had too many fathers mose moseich and i am not sure if not too many mothers she paused but when he opened his mouth to speak she rose abruptly turned on her heel and left the room. Fanny Ivanovna rose a second time. Monsieur Eisenstein, she said, you have upset everybody. I must ask you to leave my house. I cannot have you exhibiting your domestic difficulties in this strange manner before our friends. We all have our sorrows, but we must keep them to ourselves. They are of no interest to others. Please leave us. Again she must have thought of him as the man who had delivered Nikolai Vasilievich from his wife. She had a kind look for him, but she was a determined lady. But not for being put out even by the most determined lady, give me a Russian Jew. Eisenstein looked round and saw Vera in the twilight, mute and hostile, perched up on the armchair in the corner. Vera! Verochka! he cried. You, my daughter! Shh! Fanny Ivanovna hissed like a serpent. You must not. Must not? Why? Why mustn't I? He said with that characteristically Jewish intonation. Why should I be ashamed of my own daughter? You treat me as if I was an outsider and didn't belong to the family. Why should my daughter be ashamed of me? She is my daughter, and you know it, Fanny Ivanovna. Whether this was a revelation to Vera or only a confirmation of what she already knew, or had perhaps suspected, it was hard to tell. She sat there on her perch, mute, aloof. Now, said Fanny Ivanovna, coming up to him with indomitable determination, you must certainly go. And he left the room, sobbing. How horribly he cried, said Sonya. I followed her out to the drawing-room. When I returned, I perceived that Vera was wiping her tear-stained eyes and telling Fanny Ivanovna, who had evidently been consoling her. And I had hated him so. Oh, I still hate him so, so. She half-sobbed again, wiping her tear-stained face with her little handkerchief. And I thought that I could now discover something Jewish about her pretty features. And then there was another bell. It seemed that evening that it was one long succession of bells, each carrying in its trail some fresh dramatic revelation, 
as though we had been privileged to witness some three-act, soul-shattering melodrama. It was to be a night of bells and sobs. 8. This time there was a good deal of whispering between the maid on the one hand and Sonia and Nina and Vera on the other. Then the three sisters vanished into the hall, and there was more whispering. It seemed that the heavy front door had been only half shut, and that they had all gone out onto the landing. About five minutes later they returned to Fanny Ivanovna, purring round her like three pretty kittens, till Fanny Ivanovna became suspicious. Then they grew still, and a mysterious look came on Nina's face. "'Fanny Ivanovna,' she said, Yes. Will you do something for me, Fanny Ivanovna? I will. You know, Nina, that I will do anything for you. Anything reasonable. I'm afraid you will think it unreasonable, Fanny Ivanovna. What is it? said Fanny Ivanovna, for some reason looking round at me, as though I were a party to the conspiracy. Nina looked at Sonia, and Sonia nodded. Mamma is outside, on the landing. She wants to see you. Will you see her? Please, Fanny Ivanovna, please. I understood now why Vera had come back to Petersburg. Please, cried Sonia, please, echoed Vera. Fanny Ivanovna rose very swiftly, as if by the swiftness of her movement she intended to intercept at the root that which she considered quite inadmissible. No, she said, coloring highly, no. Fanny Ivanovna, please. No, Nina, no, it's out of the question. Oh, Fanny Ivanovna, please, they entreated her. She is our mother, Fanny Ivanovna. We can't have our mother waiting on the landing. After all, she's our mother. After all, said Fanny Ivanovna, putting a terrible meaning of her own into these simple words. After all, I am the mistress of this house. True, I have been thrown into the mud and trampled on, told I am not wanted, done away with, about to be thrown into the street like a dog, but while I am here, I am the mistress of this flat. After all, I am, she cried out, almost in tears. Very well, then, I will never speak to you again, said Nina. The three sisters again vanished on the landing, and whispers were renewed and Fanny Ivanovna resumed her needlework, her agile fingers, it seemed to me, moving quicker than was their custom. "'The lap-dog,' she whispered, turning her face to me. "'The German governess. Andrei Andreitch, why should I? Why should I?' When at last the three sisters returned from the landing, such depressing silence descended upon the room that I thought I would do well to follow the example of the two Pavel Pavlovichi and go home. There was no one to see me out this time. As I reached the lower steps of the broad, winding staircase, I heard the faint sound of a woman weeping. Then I could see a dark silhouette between the large glass double doors leading out into the dim street. It was also dim in the vestibule. As I came nearer, I saw that it was Magda Nikolaevna Bursanova. My first impulse was to dash upstairs for a glass of water, but the sobs died away at my approach. It was still raining heavily. I raised my hat. "'I have sent the porter for a cab,' she said, wiping her tears hurriedly. 
I don't know if he'll get one now. It's raining terribly. And as we waited before I knew where I was, she too began her confession. You must have heard of me often, she said in her gentle, musical voice. She was a very gentle-mannered woman, and in her youth she must have been curiously like Nina. She even had, I thought, the sidelong look. I am sure, she said, I shouldn't like to hear all that you have, no doubt, been told about me. Then she added, I know you, Nina has spoken of you. But there is one thing, Andre. I don't know your... Andre Andreyitch. There is one thing, Andre Andreyitch, that I want to know. Why, why can't we put our heads together and decide something, help each other, instead of standing on our silly dignities? Heaven knows that we are in a muddle. Heaven knows that we have all of us sinned in our own small way, Andrei Andreyitch. I came, I wanted to see her, to arrange things, to have it all out. I want to marry and leave them. I want Nikolai to give me a divorce. Then I will leave them alone. They can all do just as they please. I bear no one any malice. I came, and I was not admitted. Into my own house, my own flat. It was my flat, Andrei Andreyitch. I chose it. I bought the things and arranged them. There isn't a single thing in here that wasn't mine. When all is said and done, they are my children, Andrei Andreyitch, and I have to wait outside like some low hawker, a tatarin, on the landing, not admitted. She was about to sob again, but then thought better of it and replaced her handkerchief. But, Andrei Andreyitch, to send my own daughter to me in Moscow as a kind of emissary to ask me on no account to grant Nikolai Vasilievich a divorce, so that he should be unable to marry again. I call that low, low. All this time she has wanted a divorce, reproached me, in fact, for standing in the way. What has it to do with me? If Nikolai really wanted a divorce, how could I have prevented him from getting it? He would lose the children, I explained. Why should he lose the children? she asked. It's the Russian law. Magda Nikolaevna laughed. Are you a law student? No. I thought not. Why? She laughed again. She had, I noticed, a very wicked laugh. <laughs> Andrei Andreyitch, you are very, very young, and believe everything you hear. If I am in the wrong, and he is in the right, is it likely, I ask you, that under any conceivable law Nikolai should lose the children? It is the one who is in the wrong that loses the children. If Nikolai does not want a divorce, because he does not want to lose the children, he knows that he is in the wrong. So you think that is the reason he doesn't want a divorce, I said, and then added, of course I knew that. Ah, but you didn't know why he would lose the children by a divorce. If you are logical, you must admit that it is so. It's either so, or... Or? Or Nikolai simply did not want a divorce. Why? Perhaps he didn't want it. She shrugged her shoulders and laughed wickedly. <laughs> you see, you can't have it both ways. 
Either he didn't want a divorce because he didn't want to lose the children, in which case he obviously admits that he is in the wrong. Or, she laughed wickedly, he merely says so to Fanny Ivanovna, who is stupid and knows no better, because he does not want a divorce, so as not to marry her. But he does want a divorce, I said. Now, said Magda Nikolaevna, I suppose you know why he wants it now. I nodded, and she nodded in answer, I thought rather significantly. I remembered that it had always been her wish to read for the bar, but her own life had been too busy and complicated by legal proceedings to admit of the leisure necessary for the pursuit of her hobby. "'You know only half the story, young man,' she said. "'You know, for instance, that I ran away with Eisenstein. But you don't know why I ran away with Eisenstein.' "'I'm sure I don't want to,' I said, "'if that is not being very rude.' "'Half-truths are more dangerous than lies,' said she. Here the porter returned with a cab. She searched in her little bag for a coin, but I anticipated her. "'But you must,' she said, and, dragging me after her under the raised hood of the cab, and seated therein comfortably, she was about to begin a long story, but suddenly checked herself. "'It's rather absurd,' she said, and then laughed softly which for the moment made her seem to me again curiously like Nina, that I should be telling you why I ran away with Eisenstein at a time when I ought to be telling you why I have just run away from him. I'm going to marry, she said. Yes? An Austrian. Chichedek. Do you know him? No. Andre Andreitch, she said suddenly, as we sat under the dripping roof, bouncing softly over the cobblestones. Why don't you go in for law? It's so interesting. And glad of a change of subject, I told her why I did not propose to read law. But as we turned on to the Litany and began ascending the convex bridge, she bent eagerly towards me and told me in great detail why she had run away with Eisenstein and why she was now running away from him. End of section 2